Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Ready Room. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Matt is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University and an expert on the behavioral and psychological effects of psychoactive drugs in humans. In particular, psilocybin, which is the active drug in magic mushrooms. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Matt is a fascinating guy, and his work seems full of possibilities for how we look at the way in which our personalities might be hacked, for lack of a better term. And Matt might object to this characterization as being hyperbole, or at the very least, an oversimplification. But it's not inaccurate to say that his research with psilocybin has evidenced mystical-type effects often resulting in persistent changes to attitudes and behaviors as well as lasting personality changes, not to mention having shown efficacy in the treatment of depression, anxiety, and addiction recovery, which may be counterintuitive to those who aren't familiar with how these drugs work. We talked at length about these mystical experiences and whether they can be reliably replicated for not only people suffering from those conditions, but for everyone. Matt and I talked for about an hour, which was about two hours less than I would have wished for. There was just so much I wanted to ask him, but I also wanted to be mindful of his time. I really enjoyed our conversation, not only because his work is so fascinating, but because he also happens to be a really great guy. I wish we could have met face to face. I tried to lure him into the studio with the promise of sharing some great bourbon, and I I think he was keen to take me up on the offer, but we just couldn't match up our white space. But we did leave a lot of ground uncovered, and Matt, if you're listening, I owe you that drink, and I look forward to chatting again in the future. Next time, I'll come down to Baltimore. And so, without further ado, I give you Dr. Matt Johnson. So first off, thank you so much for being here, Matt. Uh, really, really excited about this conversation. I've been thinking about it for a while now. Um, and the whole, the whole uh, your uh, studies, to me, are, are just fascinating and rife with possibilities. Why don't you start out by just telling us, how did you get into um, uh, researching psychedelics and addiction? Uh, paint the picture for us. Where did you start you know, coming out of school and, and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Thanks. Uh, and thanks a lot for your interest in having me on, Bart. Um, it's a real pleasure. The Really, um, my interests were, were kindled when, let's see, I started out in college right out of high school, and in, in the plan was to go into engineering, um, always sort of been quantitatively minded, uh, Dropped out. I kind of think of my early midlife crisis. Dropped out of school a couple of years. Um, didn't really, wasn't really sure about my path forward. During that time, uh, I did some, I did some reading and learned about the earlier era of psychedelic research. Now, this wasn't really why I went back into school and. Um, along the route that I did. So I went back in, in, into school after a couple of years into psychology. Um, some folks said I had lost my mind switching from engineering to psychology. It's like you could have done four years and been making twice as much as what you'll make if you, <laughs> if you stick with the psychology thing and get a doctorate, you know. Um, and if you quit after a bachelor's, you'll be working as a bank teller. But anyway, I stuck with it and it worked out. But I kind of had this broad interest at the time. I probably would have said in the in the human mind and sort of the you know, quintessentially human questions. Kind of became a little more interested in applying my whatever skill set I had at the time to people uh, rather than necessarily. Um, things, even though I've always sort of been of that mindset, kind of a, a tinkerer. So um, during that time, I'd, I'd read about, like I said, the earlier era of psychedelic research, including the, the work that was done at Harvard. And of course, that, that particular program went off the rails with Tim Leary, who was a fascinating character, started out as a credible researcher and then really uh, kind of went in every direction, particularly when he left academia. But um, 
but I was fascinated with that. And then a few, a few years into my undergraduate training, um, I ended up at a small school, which is one of the big shifts, important, um, great decisions that I made, um, found a really inexpensive school, um, uh, moved out to Eastern Oregon. What school was uh, that? Eastern Oregon. Well, when I went out there, it was called Eastern Oregon State College. They changed their name to Eastern Oregon University a couple of years into my uh, tenure there, uh, just to sort of align with the rest of the university system in the state. But they were nonetheless about 1,800 students, so they were more college than university in feel, and 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 they're one of the few state schools that doesn't charge out of state rates. So they were real. I really went nice. there because they were. It was an opportunity to go up to the other side of the country, um, and, and I, you know, it was a cheap date for doing that, you know, and I didn't have, I had sort of a C average my first year of college and didn't have much of a background to earn a, a you know, in the way of scholarship. So I kind of, I, I, I worked all, all throughout um, my remaining time in school and went to a, a, a cheaper school, but I was really lucky that it was a small department. I was able to kind of rise through the ranks, so to speak. Um, there were only two full-time psychology professors. Um, I got into some drug research at the time, cocaine research in rats. This was some early w- research on cocaine immunization, giving uh, animals uh, an antibody against cocaine that would train the immune system to recognize cocaine the way that the immune system would normally recognize a much larger entity like a, um, you know, a, a, a microorganism, which is much larger than a little molecule like cocaine, but to train the immune system to attack cocaine and did some behavioral research, essentially training animals to discriminate whether they had gotten a cocaine injection or not, and then testing the effects of this um, antibody on it. Anyway, I was kind of... At, became really attracted into the behavioral and biological sides of psychology, which is really cool because I was thought I was going to this much more touchy feely, you know, thing, which I was also attracted to, but recognized that there's a whole, there are whole branches of the field of psychology that are much more in line with a straight up, um, uh, uh, quantitative science perspective you know this it is a natural science much like uh physics chemistry biology so um so i became very interested in drugs basically uh i i I like to say i became hooked on drugs drug drug research (laughs) in my early um time as an undergraduate and i sort of had my my in the back of my mind kind of that my earlier readings on psychedelic research and kind of had it in the back of my mind that maybe in 30 or 40 years I could resurrect that research. Uh, if, you know, I, I kind of, you know, played my cards right and, and did some more mainstream uh, uh, work of high quality. I discovered during my, so fast forward several years, I went to a, a uh, a graduate program in Vermont and my graduate mentor pointed me for a postdoctoral training after I got my PhD pointed me towards uh, the group at Hopkins that I'm at now um, really nothing to do with the psychedelic research but I found out during my um, postdoc interview that my who became my eventual postdoc uh, mentor uh, he was doing this this it was a, a small initial study, but was doing a study with psilocybin, the active agent in so-called magic mushrooms, and he was at the time keeping it under under um, it, it was being very secretive about it because he wanted to publish some data before it was on the front you know front front page headlines um, for fear that the publicity might you know um, uh, you know call some cause some unwarranted fear uh so so anyway i i jumped and that jumped fear would be based into it that fear would be based just on the fact that they're studying magic mushrooms right yeah. and you know oh here goes tim leary again here goes you know don't you know how this older research kind of panned out it 
you know, it escaped from the lab and, you know, Tim Leary became a counterculture guru and then tried to turn on, you know, all of America's teenagers onto LSD. See, see this is the path. This is what unfolds. Of course, the, the deeper history is that Tim Leary was Tim Leary long before he had a psychedelic. Um, he was a wild man from the beginning. Uh, kicked out of West Point and another university, you know, long before he had taken the psychedelic. So that was him. There were there was a, an army of more uh, of more conventional and more boring <laughs> researchers um, that you know the public isn't aware of who were in fact um, begging Leary to tone it down. These are people like Humphrey Osmond, Sidney Cohen, uh, Abram Hoffer. Um, credible researchers who were well aware of the risks and and, and um, had a consistent message about both the potential for these uh, the potential benefits to apply these these drugs, but then also um, being very judicious in the understanding that they do entail risks like any powerful tool and the necessity to 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 mitigate those risks in a research context and to and to not really go off the deep end in terms of some of the big picture questions that that these experiences with these drugs can frankly um they can set the occasion one can easily go off the rails given the nature of some of the experiences that people have with these drugs um so anyway yeah it's 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 it was this politically charged area where the research went on hiatus for several decades, not really because research couldn't be done safely and not because there weren't promising initial findings, but simply because, um, L- L- and it was primarily LSD back in the day, it it had become by the late 60s and early 70s a popular recreational drug. And there was this association between it and the counterculture. Um, it would be too much to say it calls the counterculture. Uh, it was part of the mix yeah, of a million variables that were changing in our society at that time, including the anti-Vietnam War protests and you know, civil rights and uh, the women's movement and, you know, the the youth counterculture. Um, uh, so, you know, it sort of became, if you were looking for kind of one, you know, uh, one thing to point to that was causing all of these if you didn't like any any of those uh above listed changes you could easily point to the drugs that were corrupting the youth and certainly lsd there was far more cannabis being used but you know lsd is a more powerful substance and that's certainly the one that um uh got a lot of attention uh and and so anyway, that is so it really calls this kind of break in the research for several uh, decades. And I really think enough time had to pass for the sensationalism to die down for a new generation to come along. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned so this this was you going into uh, this is postdoc, right? You're going into um, a study on psilocybin that you mentioned that your uh, your mentor or uh, your advisor was beginning. And so how, how did that go about it? You, you, you came on board. So yeah, yeah, I got in. I helped a little bit, uh, not much, but in 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 finishing up that that initial study. But more fully jumped in at that time. It was like time for a new study. So um, we started a follow up study, carefully looking at four different doses of psilocybin, still in quote unquote healthy normals. There was no problem with people to fix, but kind of looking into, um, the effects of these drugs in people who hadn't used them before. Um, and, or, or if, if they had used them, it had been a trivial experience and decades ago, these certainly weren't psychedelic enthusiasts, but our ideal participant was one who had never used these substances. Um, and, and one of the coolest outcomes was, was looking at, the so-called mystical experience that yep. sounds a little woo-woo, but no, it's no, a, a it's a validated construct from the psychology of religion. Um, it, it and it refers to an experience, and this framework comes from outside of drugs, but come it refers to an experience where one reports an overwhelming sense of unity, like feeling 
they're at one with the universe, feeling that they've transcended time and space, uh, a sense of gnosis. In other words, there's a self-validating quality to the experience. Um, so, and an over, overwhelming sense of positivity. Uh, so one of the remarkable things is that these drugs like psilocybin can occasion experiences like that. Um, not 100% of the time, but with remarkable reliability. The, clearly, the majority of patients or participants in an ideal environment where they're prepared, they're monitored with interpersonal support, they're encouraged to introspect during the experience. In other words, to focus on their inner experience, not the external environment for, during most of the session. Um, you tend to get high rates of mystical experience. And so that. Then we went into different directions, like with cancer patients having anxiety and depression, and then also really aligning with other areas of my expertise, uh, addiction treatment, um, specifically smoking cessation. And so those cancer, distress, and addiction were the two big prominent therapeutic uses of psychedelics back in the research in the 60s, really from the 50s through the early 70s. So we've picked up on that and gone up in a number of directions since, in the 15 years since. Yeah. So uh, just to touch on that one, I want to come back to the mystical experience thing because obviously I think that for most lay people, that's probably the most fascinating part of the whole study. Um, but just dwelling on what you just mentioned, uh, I, I think I've read that uh, psychedelics also help, uh, and this I guess would be close to home, with uh, people suffering from PTSD. A depression and anxiety, I think you mentioned. Yeah, the PTSD work, you're probably thinking of the of the work with MDMA, sure, which yeah, is it. a it, it's a related substance. It's kind of sometimes broadly classified as a psychedelic it's, to uh, get me- into methylene, the weeds, it's not a classic methamp- psychedelic. Yeah. But 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 yeah, the, the, I th- I think it's I think there's good reason to explore psilocybin. For PTSD, that work hasn't been done yet. There's some promising observational research with ayahuasca, yep. which contains DMT. And just for for your listeners, the the the, the classic psychedelics are are things like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, yep. also mescaline, which mescaline. is in peyote and some yes. other cacti. Um, and there's a, a whole range of experimental, you know, synthesized compounds. Um, those have some overlap but are are qualitatively different than MDMA which some folks call an intactogen it's sort of a softer psychedelic has okay. more of an emotional experience more consistency in the nature of the experience but broadly speaking these are all um, psychedelics and and they work in the classic psychedelics work in a particular way there's differences in flavor across them in terms of different receptors that are hit to what degree, but they all activate the serotonin 2A receptor and MDMA releases serotonin um, broadly across a number of uh, serotonin uh, receptor subtypes. So we, we know not only do people report that there's some overlap, but they feel substantially different. Uh, we also know that they that, that goes along with them working through fundamentally different mechanisms. But yeah, broadly speaking with psychedelics, MDMA for PTSD is one of the most promising uh, areas. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so um, getting back to what you were talking about, you hit on these the, the mystical experience, which is something I'd like to focus on. Um, I think uh, y- you work with uh, uh, with Dr. Griffiths, right? I believe at John. Right, right, right. I right. think I heard him on another... Um, podcast at one point and talking about the same thing. And so that's when I started looking into it more. And I came across an interview, um, a guy named uh, Rick Doblin. I'm not sure if you know right. the name. Uh, he, uh, oh, yeah, I know Rick. Uh, okay. He's, uh, in fact, the, he's the head of the MAPS group, which is MAPS, funded yeah. that MDMA research we were just talking okay, about. Okay, yeah, that's right. So I, I, got, I went to the website and everything, and I, and I found an interview he had done with Larry Hagman. This was oh, after yeah. I heard. Yeah. And and Took so you're familiar with this. Back in the day, yep. Um what hit me, I I think, is I I'm reading this, is it you know, for, for those listening, uh Larry Hagman, actor, uh, he was on uh, I Dream of Genie. Again, I'm aging myself, and then he was uh J. R. Ewing in Dallas. in Dallas, right? So guys of uh of our generation will remember that. 
Um, but a, a famous actor. In any case, just to make a, a, a long story very short, he took LSD at the urging or, or, um, of his uh, psychiatrist, and he had a trip or mystical experience during this uh, first use ever. I think he was about 40 years old. And he basically has claimed for years after, uh, for decades after, he said, hey, I was never the same person. Uh, before I was uh, competitive, uh, angry, I had anxiety. Uh, I had been addicted uh, to some pain uh, pills and, and alcohol. He's like, I, I came out of this this trip, if you will, with with a new understanding of the universe, and I'm just paraphrasing now, um, yeah. but uh, love in my heart for my fellow mankind and no fear of death. Like I feel like I, he said, I feel like I've seen something that makes me not fearful of death. This is that mystical experience or just one example of it, right, Matt? Right. And so to me, I remember thinking, wow, this is as close as you could possibly come to being visited by three spirits on Christmas Eve and waking up with love in your heart for your fellow humans. Right. How? Yeah. So touch on that more, please. Yeah. That, that, in fact, that's a great, great analogy with uh, Christmas Carol. The, uh, my colleague at University of Alabama, Birmingham, Peter Hendricks, who's doing now work with yeah. cocaine addiction. I, I read some of his so- stuff, by the way. Right, right, right. He, um, he often uses the, the stu, uh, um, uh, Scrooge, not Stooge, uh, the Scrooge analogy, is, uh, uh, it's something like that, you know, it's really uh, having this big picture acute experience, it's not the, the form of incremental learning that us in psychology and in psychiatry are more used to dealing with, um, it is, we're, these drugs seem to have the ability to prompt these broad, shifts in perspective and and changes in behavior that are not uncommon in people's lifetimes and throughout history, but they're really hard to schedule for like, say, next Tuesday, you know? Absolutely. Um, someone might say, oh, my life really changed after I had, you know, my first kid or after I got married or boy, that time you know, I first visited, you know, lived in another culture for a few months and it really changed my perspective or maybe um, going into the military. I mean, these kind of big life experiences that change fundamentally and in, in, in not in every respect, but they they take the same person and broaden their perspective and and, and create a qualitative shift in their view of the world. Um, and there is, I mean, there are dramatic examples, um, you know, throughout history. I mean, there's there's plenty of them. We know these things happen, and they happen uh, throughout throughout um, cultures in every part of the globe throughout history. I mean, you know, they're embedded in our our religion. Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, these these transformative experiences where uh, the the person is fundamentally changed, and it, it seems that that psychedelics are a way. That it's not guaranteed, absolutely, and it's highly dependent on context. Plenty of people that take these things just for fun end up just having fun. Sometimes they have some trouble. Sometimes they have one of these life-altering experiences. Although the the chances are, are I would just argue, less. It's like turn, you know, keeping the gain down on the knob when one has a therapeutic type intervention and they prepare and they introspect and they have follow-up discussion you're really turning the gain up on the probability of one of those impactful experiences yeah i mean this is like a full life review and to be clear that you know people will describe these sessions in any number of of ways it's not always from a religious or even a spiritual perspective. Some say they're religious, some say they're spiritual but not religious, some say none of the above, that all is a bunch of hogwash. And even that last category of folks, we've had uh, plenty of folks at this point in various studies like that, and it's, it, it, they seem to be just as, as effective. We haven't done the head-to-head comparison, but with a broad stroke, I'd say, you know, uh, we see about the same thing. Um, people may be describing their experiences differently. Um, 
And some of that language, like spirituality, means different things to many people. Sure. You, you might have a person that comes out of a session and you, and you say, uh, well, is it spiritual? And the person says, uh, maybe they've just described, uh, you know, seeing the connection between themselves and every other person in their life and, and, and the influence they have on all of their loved ones and the profound connection that they have with their loved ones and the people they're connected to in life and how their the lineage of you know billions of years of evolution and how precious life is and all of these things and then you say is it spiritual and they say well no i mean i didn't see any angels or crystals or i didn't see a big dude on a throne and and then you ask another person who describes basically the same kind of experience and you say is it spiritual and they kind of look at you and they say duh have you not are you not listening to me like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that word just means very different That's things right. these are just about I think of these as human experiences. Um, people tend to look at the big picture of their life, um, and it can be viewed from a variety of perspectives. And, and kind of those perspectives are, are not, to me, not the most interesting thing. The interesting thing is the fact that people really check in to what they check into the big questions: What is the meaning in life? Um, what am I here? What am I here to do? Um, what direction am I going in in life? What's really important to me? Yeah. So these are the the, the questions that so many of us ask. Uh, it's really just fascinating stuff. I think your colleague in Alabama there, he he mentions awe as something that is uh, connected with this, right? And the idea that right. you know, so there's different ways that you can come about awe. You mentioned it, like the birth of a child that will change you in profound ways. Obviously, I I know that from experience, and it did. Um, if you were to point somebody, you know, at, at the at the greatest telescope in the world, maybe somewhere in a mountain in Chile, and have them look at the at the cosmos in a way they never have, they they probably pull away from that, going, I I, I can't believe this. This is unreal, and it probably changes yeah. them. But there's a a real difference, right, between staring at at the cosmos and all of its, uh, uh, you know, in, infinite uh, wonder. And then having the same experience while you know staring at the uh, at the wallpaper in your living room, right? Talk about right. that. Well, and it, it seems that that those experiences, these deeply meaningful, mystical experiences, tend to ha- happen with the highest frequency when there's an introspective framework. So. By that I mean when wearing eye shades or keeping the eyes closed and when really instructed not to be describing everything, don't talk through the experience, just kind of go inward, focus your attention inward, trust, let go, be open. And the guides or the monitors, the people in the room there with them who have prepared them you know, in sessions before the drug session – are there for really just support. If the person is doing fine, there's virtually any talking. They'll check in once a half hour or so. Just you know, you know, like you know, Bart, are you doing okay? You know, just making sure. You know, we'll let you. You know, if the person's doing fine, they go at it. You there's a you want to make sure the person's not dealing with some anxiety because you can really kind of step in and diffuse that early by just reminding them that you're there with them. Sometimes the most powerful thing is just taking their hand holding their hand um, as a very powerful reminder that there's another human being that you know that's sitting there taking care of you. Um, uh, but 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 other than that, kind of checking in about anxiety, keeping the talking to a minimum, getting out of the discursive intellect, you know, the need to describe, categorize, kind of formulate what you're going to say about this. Get away from all of that. Just delve deeply into the experience and explore. Um, and you mentioned staring at the at the wall the uh you know because so sometimes to be clear people have this these mystical experiences when they're at a concert or they're at a party sure. you know it, Without it just all seems the preparation that, that you would normally do in a clinical setting right it, it 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 seems like you're just again turning up the gain on having that type of deeply meaningful experience by orienting the person inward so there is time. It's a five, six-hour drug effect. So there's time to look at the pretty artwork in the room and the oriental carpet. And, you know, it's an aesthetically pleasing room. A lot of our sessions, we have a, a rose there. And, 
you know, there's, you know, uh, there are, there's time to enjoy the environment, but the idea is that compared to recreational use, that if, if you allow person to just explore the environment and don't encourage this introspection, that one can kind of get stuck at a perceptual level. So the colors can be fascinating and intense, uh, and there, the walls can be wavy and that can be cool and there's nothing wrong with that. But the idea is that if you don't encourage an inward focus, you can kind of get stuck there. Um, and it's just about wavy walls and the coolest color green I've ever seen in my life. And again, nothing wrong with that, but the idea is you can get to these deeper levels of reflections upon yourself um, your life history, your autobiographical history, the relationships in your life, what you're doing in your life. And then even below that are the even bigger questions about the nature of reality and, and, and these things. So, you know, you, you just, again, maximize the potential by encouraging this inward perspective. You know, Matt, I, I, the whole idea behind it, when you step back and think about this stuff, for I think most people that don't study it like you do, um, if you were to ask somebody, and I think this has to do with the plasticity of the mind, and we can get into that, but if you were to ask somebody off the street, hey, if I could give you this pill and it would uh, profoundly alter the way that you view uh, yourself, your loved ones, the universe, humanity, and that you would, be, uh, you would have less anger, less anxiety, and a better understanding of where you fit, I, I think most people would be like, yeah, absolutely. Please give me that, right? Is it, yeah. it, it is? Are we close? Is it close to that? I mean, is it, you know, uh, is it that easy, or how does it? I know you've talked already about it depends on context, and it depends on you know the person and their frame of mind. But boy, it, it sure sounds promising in so many ways. I know there are obviously risks, and we'll touch on those in a minute too. But what would you say to the layperson that was like, yeah, hey, I want, I want to do this because. Heck yeah, I want to wake up like a happy person like Scrooge in the in the Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah, I think the, um, there's incredible promise for that for that reason. And, and there are risks. You probably get a lower percentage of people saying they're interested when you say, oh, and by the way, which we do in our informed consent, this could be the most terrifying experience of your life as well. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you about – uh, some, some of my best examples of that come from volunteers with former military experience because wow, that's like that's you know a real standard to compare to. Yeah. Um, so so it's not to be taken lightly. And some people, frankly, are and there's nothing wrong with our you know some people say uh, you know I'm not interested in that. My 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 view of the world is serving me you know plenty fine and i'm not looking to shake these things up sometimes we, we all know those people right matt and we're like wow sure, sure. You, you know these people that are just happy already and they're just like yeah i think i'm pretty good you know and you're like oh man I, my commute just made me angry and i'm gonna think about that for two <laughs> yeah, days so yeah. you know it's funny like yeah you get all types like some people are kind of like the um you know they're already what you would hope from the after picture and and you know, it's it's interesting doing the seeing hundreds of people go through this for you know for fifteen years through these various studies. Like you can create kind of this caricature of what you might hope for, which there's some real dangers in there. Like you don't you don't always want someone to change their life. Like it is true, even if they have one of these experiences. Like one, not everyone wants to change anything about their life, and a lot of times they shouldn't. Like you're doing good, you yeah. know, and maybe there's some philosophical insight and maybe, you know, some other, you know, you know, other than anything else, maybe it's a really interesting experience. But sometimes like there is no major change to, you know, that you would want, like the world wouldn't necessarily be a better place if you sold all of your belongings and you moved to a cave in India and started meditating. Um, to be clear, we've never had someone do that. But that kind of fits into like the maybe an extreme example of what folks might might think about. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's not, you know, a lot of times people come out of these sessions with the profound gratitude that, you know, they have this 
family that is um, like what a miracle that I have this these people around me you know what sometimes they say like it's so cool that I'm doing what I'm doing in life my job my whatever I, I and, and sometimes people feel more invigorated and they kind of kind of get recharged with doing these things but it's not like they're on the wrong path sometimes they're they recognize very profoundly what a cool path they're on and they they just want to dig deeper into that path and have more gratitude towards it and so that's and, and sometimes people want to change sometimes the point of the study is to change you know i'm suffering and i'm obsessed over my cancer and i'm i'm in bed every day and i could be living my life and i got to get over this okay let's orient it to change that you know I've been a cigarette smoker for decades and I, I'm a healthy person otherwise in my world. Why am I still doing this? I've tried everything. You know, let's focus on that. So these are pretty clear things that any reasonable person would, given the evidence, you know, um, uh, or many reasonable people say, like, yeah, these things are things that should change. And, um, and to be clear, we only work with people like that who want to change. I mean, they seek out the study. We're not convincing anyone who's happy being a cigarette smoker that they should quit. You know, my personal view is that's up to them. You know, it's a free society. Uh, but we know that 70% of U.S. smokers want to quit and they just haven't been successful. So that's a great opportunity to help people. So anyway, just, you know, some people need to change in, in little ways. Some t people don't need much of a change. Um, some people uh, do end up having big, bigger changes. Um, so it's something to really wrap a lot of wisdom around. One has to take this experience. And we always encourage people, don't make any decisions right after. Other than something that you're pretty clear already about, like quitting smoking. You know, sure. don't, don't follow up with any, you know, don't make any change in a relationship like the day after, you know. You know, sit with anything for a while. Like, you know, your your everyday sober mind is the other side of the equation, and there's a profound wisdom there that you just have to treat the psilocybin experience like an experience, and there are no black and white answers from that. But you have to weigh this as a person, um, and discuss it, and 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 really apply some wisdom from your overall life. Yeah. You know, I think you mentioned somewhere in there that um, certain people have these terrifying experiences. And you mentioned military, which to me, I, that was a that was a sort of a wow coming from my background. But what do we know? I guess when we're when we're talking about what the, what happens in the mind, what do we know about how the mind works and how these substances work with the mind in terms of from what I've read, it, it sometimes changes um uh, neural pathways, certain parts of the mind are talking to other parts of the mind that normally don't communicate, right? And so that's how you get this, hey, I'm smelling orange type of uh, experience, say, right? Uh, the yeah. smell of green is different, that, that, something like that. And I'm throwing out very, uh, you know, just broad sort of uh, examples. But we know that there's these pathways that typically don't join, I, I think. Uh, maybe you could come, kind of go into that. And then touching on, uh, along with that, you know, you mentioned, hey, some people should not be taking these. Some people shouldn't change. What have you seen between – so there's probably a, a people that you've studied that have you – know, that are just normal, run-of-the-mill people, right, that, uh, that you know, aren't super happy but aren't super angry. There's probably people that are severely depressed uh, maybe that have been there or, or have incredible anxiety. And then, I mean, I guess on the real bad side of the spectrum, you, you could have, you know, psychopathy involved. What, how would that, how would they differ, differ in terms of those types of minds? Yeah. Um, well, I'll take the first question. Um, uh, first, the, it, we know a lot about what happens acutely. In other words, during, you know, when the drug is having its effects, you know, when they're having the drug experience. And what seems to be happening, you alluded to, is that parts of the brain are talking to each other or synchronized with each other in a way where they're normally kind of doing their own thing. There's some amount of crosstalk, but there's a large amount of compartmentalization in the brain or the mind, if you will. Um, but that acutely under psychedelic, there's a lot more synchronization, like the activity in one area has more to do with the activity in a normally relatively unrelated area. Um, 
so and that's at the perceptual level seems like it's related to the reports of synesthesia like seeing colors you know there's this kind of blending of different aspects of perception but then at deeper levels this may relate to the profound insights like people saying they kind of get life lessons at a deeper level um you know, these things that might sound kind of cliche but now they kind of feel them in their bones. It may be that there's been this integration of the mind at every level. I mean, a lot of what I study in psychology is how people are fragmented across time and how our decision making, it's almost like we're different selves at different points in time. And yeah. so much of our behavior has to be, you have to trust the you of tomorrow. Like if you're trying to quit drinking, you know, it's only worth quitting drinking tonight if you trust the you of tomorrow tomorrow to follow suit it's like getting a group of individuals like in the military or another group exercise to do the same thing you have to be on the same plan in order to make anything happen you have to integrate so it's interesting that there's this kind of integration acutely and that can also be related to the good and the bad the idea is you get too much crosstalk it's like um you know maybe you're seeing connections that aren't normally there and and or or that that aren't there or maybe there's some connection, but you're you're overreading it, and you're not. Um, so you you dip into more of the delusional uh, type thinking stuff. We don't see a whole lot of, but you see some of it, and you contain it well in the session. And you know people don't have that when the experience is over. But the big question, back to the the plasticity, the big question that we and others are working on now is: Are there long-term changes like that when you see persisting changes in behavior? you know, like six months, a year later, is there a change in the crosstalk in the brain? Um, that we don't know the answer to yet, but that's the best guess that there is this long-term change um, that corresponds to that dramatic, more dramatic change that occurs in that crosstalk when the drug is having its acute effects. In terms of the risk, like, yeah, one of the kind of the no-go categories, it, at least at this point, um, it's the safest bet that people with psychotic disorders or good predisposition for those disorders just shouldn't get these substances. These are people with um, the va the various forms of schizophrenia. Um, you could say loosely if you're, you're holding on to reality, if you're holding on to reality is hanging by a thread, the last thing you need is a, a major psychedelic. Um, and, and and most of the kind of the they're kind of urban legends. They're, they're real cases, but it can be overstated. The cases of where people have taken these drugs and never come back. It seems pretty convincing that those cases are exclusively people with psychotic disorders or people who had a good predisposition for it with early signs of it. And and yeah, I got to keep in mind a lot of times when people experiment with these drugs for the first time, that's right at the same age when you typically see the first psychotic break in schizophrenics, so late adolescence, early adulthood. And you look at historical cases like Sid Barrett, the first singer of Pink Floyd. Um, he's one of those people, you know, folks have said have never come back, but he was clearly on the psychotic spectrum before he ever touched a psychedelic. Um, so now, to be clear, it may be that, and it seems very likely that the psychedelic made things worse and maybe it instigated a full re psychotic reaction where one would have stayed sub-threshold, especially if they were in a good environment, had a secure family, yeah. had all the supports. Maybe it made things worse. Maybe it had a, a caused a full break where and the full break never would have happened. We don't know. You can't wrap a controlled study around that. You know, give me, you know, 50 people that seem like they have signs to become psychotic in the next 10 years and give half of them, uh, you know, like that's wholly unethical. Uh, but the best guess from the clinical observation uh, in, in the history is that, that, yeah, those people can be harmed. So we err on the side, the cautious side of just, and you can, of screening those people out and you can reliably identify folks. Um, with that predisposition with good psychiatric. That's fascinating. Study. So, Matt, I'm going into, uh, obviously, because you're like, hey, best guess, best guess, right? So uh, through all of that, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so, yeah, have you really, has there ever been a study, you know, about how psychedelics affect people with serious psychoses? I mean, 
uh, it sounds like you've already answered that. No, that would be completely unethical, right? If I'm hearing you correct, to to say, hey, we're going to yeah. study psychedelic drugs on people with psychopathy. On well, the there was some earlier research yeah, that was really poorly done. It wasn't done of that design that I was describing, but there was some research where folks were given, you know, psychotic folks were given psychedelics in a way that you look back on and it just wasn't uh, it wasn't even set first of all you, you know there's the ethics of you know it wasn't ethical sure. but then it, it wasn't even set up in a way to really test those big picture questions about people having their first break or not so so yeah yeah we know next to nothing about it yeah that is fascinating because I'm sitting here thinking okay so I've I've read and we've talked a little bit about these mystical experiences that seem to have profound lasting positive benefits for some people I mean going back to, to the Larry Hagman thing I, I mean he you know decades later he's like I'm, I'm I've never you know it, it's still with me I still remember it I'm, yeah. I'm I have no fear of death and I still have love for everybody but and I'm like wow uh, maybe so we I don't know how much we know about the psychopathic mind but I mean if you were to have given you know, psychedelics in a controlled setting to say the btk killer would that have maybe helped him in some way i mean maybe the psychopathic mind just needs to be you know maybe it's plastic just as well and and it and some rewiring would happen i I don't know this is completely a layman asking you right i think i think it's good to to ask that question um and this falls into the category of you know never say never and um, it kind of all depends, you know, these things we should be saying all the time as scientists. So is it possible that there is some way of using these at some dose and some preparation that could help people with psychotic disorders? Maybe. But I would say that's that's something that I would certainly want to put, uh, put off for a while. That's sure. not one of the most immediate questions it's there are so many plausible therapeutic routes to go um that one is particularly um the risks seem particularly high yeah with that so if it's done and i it's possible that something can could be done um you know one would just want to be e i mean we're already very cautious but even more cautious you know um start with the very lowest doses and then cautiously work the way up um we would probably want to be at a point where we know a little more about what's happening in the brain and have have some more drilled in hypotheses about how that would work but i mean kind of a general scientific principle is something that tinkers with the system one way or the other i mean you can push the system to one side or the other. And so just knowing that you have some sort of interaction there suggests, suggests that there's at least some ability to manipulate that system. And you have, in science, you have all these, all types of situations where you have so-called nonlinear effects, inverted U shapes, dose dependent effects, like maybe at too high of a dose, you have this effect, but you have the opposite effect at a lower dose. I mean, so just a lot of hand waving here, but, yeah, yeah. but, but, but it, it's not crazy to think that one day we could, given the relationship that we think exists, at least in terms of making things worse for some people with these disorders, maybe there's the possibility that one could use them in a very specific way to help those people. There, are, I was talking with a colleague the other day. There are some anecdotes, and you got to be careful because you can find an anecdote of anything sure. if you look. Hard, you know, cast your nets wide enough, but anecdotes of people say that they've helped been helped with psychotic disorders who have had um, psychedelics. Um, so, you know, there might be something there where you just have to be super cautious because we, we're pretty convinced that that's an area of potential risk um, in making those disorders worse. So that's, you know, obviously you don't want to make anyone worse and cause any harm along that, that those domains. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I, I just thought I'd ask just, you know, a lot of times when you think about the mind, or at least someone that doesn't study the mind, like myself, it's like, you know, where does pure evil come from? What, what is it? You know, what is what we call evil, and, and how does it arrive there? And how can we, you know, someday maybe, you know, fix that? I, and I thought, wow, maybe, maybe this is a way. But as you've just mentioned, I, yeah. I mean, there's so much we don't know about the mind. And it, and it really, 
that, that's why I think your field of study is just so fascinating because you're really breaking new ground all the time. So I, I just, yeah, it, it occurred to me that maybe this is a path forward in understanding and getting a hold of that, of, of evil, you know, evil, uh, what we perceive as evil. Obviously, we can, yeah. you know, philosophize about what is evil and what is good all day long. I don't think we need to go down that. But let's let's turn that, you know, let's go to another direction. Uh, I'll, I'll switch directions from pure evil to how about what we kind of consider pure good. I, I saw... Um, uh, your speech at a conference uh, on YouTube where you mentioned that you were um, going to be uh, studying religious leaders um, and the effects of yeah. these on religious leaders. And I thought, wow, how cool is that? And what do you yeah. hope What do you hope to find? So th- this obviously, these are people that we would consider good, right, as opposed to evil. Well, what do right. we hope to find and what was your the impetus for that in terms of uh, studying these effects on religious leaders? Um. So we're in the process of doing that study now. We're wrapping yeah. it up. Uh, we don't have formal conclusions yet. But th- th- the biggest questions there, and, and the most likely that we'll be able to address, the most interesting questions for me are, do people, uh, do they see value in these experiences? And do they, and most importantly, do they have lasting benefit in the pro-social aspects of their of their profession. So in other words, you know, does a person, does it counteract burnout? Um, is, does the person kind of return to their roots of why they went into this? Are, do they feel more invigorated when they are, are called to stay up at three in the morning at the hospital yeah. with some, you know, with the wife of a, a clergy member whose hus- husband just had a heart attack, you know, are they, um, are they less sort of like uh, burnt out and you know, have less of this sense of feeling buried when they're burdened with all of the problems of their uh, congregation members? These types of things. Um, another aspect that we're not really well powered to uh, address at all, but but hopefully we'll anecdotally have some um, something to say about it, but. The, what is the nature of this experience with people of different um, of different religious backgrounds? So we've got uh, some variability there. We were never able to uh, get a, a Muslim iman, which was our you know that that was the one major missing yeah. category. So, so what you're saying right now that there's not an imam that you've reached out to that would be willing to do this? Uh, right. Wow. Right. Wow. Um, so. But but we do have some variability in terms of religious background. And, and so one interesting question, again, we're underpowered to really squarely address it, but is generally the nature of the experience similar? Um, and this touches on, it doesn't squarely address, but this idea of perennial, perennialism within the psychology of religion. And, and this isn't known, it's debated in the psychology of religion, but do are all religions based ultimately on a core a, a core similar experience of the the mystical experience that I described earlier yeah um, does that is that at the foundation of of all organized religions do and similarly do all religions ultimately point to at least all of the major religions do they ultimately point to some core philosophical uh, common truths so or at least you know common uh, tenets whether they're ultimately metaphysically true or not um so i mean those are big questions and we certainly couldn't address that but it touches on that category yeah you know it are is is the mystical do you get these so-called mystical experiences and do they look similar across christians and uh jewish and um buddhist religious leaders yeah and are people and, and you know it's one of the limitations is it's not a you can't randomly pick people off the street any any religious leader willing to do the study is by definition a little more open than your average uh religious leader probably but anecdotally we've already seen some reports of shift the fact that people are more uh more open to the idea that that 
people really are just coming from different perspectives and a, a, a deeper appreciation for um, the value of, of of other belief systems. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, and man, this is just fascinating stuff. One, let I would assume this is just me that most religious leaders, you know, be it a rabbi, an imam, a, a priest, or a pastor, uh, would be already probably predisposed to um, to mysticism in general, and already also predisposed to uh, compassion and uh, and empathy. Um, and so having them, uh, you know, engage in these experiences would be really, really fascinating in terms of what it was they would get out of, say, a mystical experience at that point and how they come out of it. This is just, I think there's real potential here for, for some pretty amazing stuff. I'd be interested to see if, uh, you know, their mystic experience uh, ends up mirroring what they what their mind's view of mysticism looks like in accordance with their religious texts. Right. It, you know, it's interesting because I think for some people, what you said is true about, you know, these religious uh, leaders being inclined towards mysticism in general, but not always. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, uh, and amongst religious people in general, you have um, people that are attracted to more of the, the moral and philosophical code that's provided, the the, the pro-social benefits sure, yeah. that it provides people, kind of more of the, you can point to good things uh, within religion that fall into different categories. Um, one just being like, yeah, it provides, it's a way to cohere people together. It's a way to provide social support. I mean, this was the this was the social security, you know, centuries before there was social security. Sure, yeah. This was the the a mechanism for caring for others. And so um, not everyone who's attracted to be a religious leader is one who is inclined towards mystical experiences per se. And there are people that argue depending and you get it. And there's some relationship to the, the fundamentalist um, versus whatever the opposite of fundamentalism is. Yeah. It's, orientation within religion and you have examples within every every major uh, religion of that very certainly um yes. more on the fundamentalist end it's about like you know no this isn't about your experience this is like yep. you know the experiences written down in this book from long ago are the experiences yes. and you know god isn't is no longer interacting with individuals that way. And so this isn't about you going off and having your own thing to write about. You know, this is, you got the guidebook, follow the guidebook, you know, and not to dismiss that, but, you know, and these are all things that they're, you know, I can't say are right or wrong from a scientific perspective at all. But then you have the other perspective, and again, examples in every religion where things are on the more traditional, uh, on the on the mystical side where, these things are seen, the experiential aspect of religion is seen as a continual um, tradition. And, and, uh, and the, so anyway, just the appreciation for personal experience in general differs throughout religion. And so, yeah, I, you know, I think for me, that's one of the things that I, uh, I really, that turns me away from, from organized faith of any kind really is that, uh, and these, if you're a fundamentalist of any faith, you you just hit on it. Well, here's the answers. I've got it. It's right here. Whereas a guy like me, and probably you, I, I sense, um, I, I could be wrong, are are still looking for answers. Hey, hey, we don't have the answers. Let's keep looking. Let's keep seeing where things lead. And and to sometimes, you know, in a fundamentalist view, and like you said, it's it's not that there are bad people that are that are fundamentalists. Some some are are very good people. They just have a different way of looking at the world. But uh, yeah, that sort of no, no, Bart. The answers are right here, and you're like, I don't sense that. I sense that maybe there are still answers out there that we can find, and I, and I want to do that. That's that's one of the reasons that this that your field is so appealing in terms of uh, for for me, you know, personally, and looking at that, it's it's like, hey, maybe maybe these psychedelics are a way to to come at some more answers uh, to how we're feeling. And I definitely am one of those people that 
that you know goes about his life and uh, and has anxiety now and again, just like every you know, just like every guy out there you know drives to work every day, has a job and and a family, and has to feed them, and and has uh, things pulling him in different directions. There's anxiety, sometimes there's anger, uh, and of course there's lots of joy too. And I'm uh, and uh, I'm always searching for ways to increase that joy. Uh, I'm very jealous of what we talked about in the beginning with people that we know that are just that just seem to be in a good place all the time. And you're like, wow, how can I get that? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, it's um, what exactly? I mean, I share the same, uh, you know, interests. It's one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to this area. Like, you have the ability to manipulate so many uh, uh, in, important dimensions that make a difference in people's life. It's it's kind of the ultimate marriage uh, it, to me between this kind of the nerdy scientific reductionist side of like, okay, you're clearly administering a compound that's having an effect on a receptor, which is having an effect as a domino effect in the brain. And that's having systems level effect on the brain communications that we're talking about. And then you, as a behavioral psychologist, I'm most interested in the ultimate change and long lasting behavior. But, you know, it's getting at these kind of touchy feely, um, you know, the, the, the big picture questions, you know, like what are, how are you dealing with the, those core human experiences, like life is going to be full of suffering. Life is not going to be all, um, you know, fun and happiness. Um, addiction, and I think addiction, broadly speaking, like uh, with substances, but then to patterns of behavior that people get stuck in is a human constant um you know what are what are you doing in life to <laughs> what makes life meaningful what why why what's the value of even being alive what's the what's the point of it all what are you going to do with this opportunity um you just kind of showed up you didn't ask for it out of nowhere and what are you gonna you know what are you gonna do with it what's the point of it all i mean it gets to you know you at least, you know, bring people to the edge of those big questions. And, and there may not be anything concrete that we can say in terms of the big answers. But I think in confronting those big questions, people um, people find their own answers. And so much of, of modern society keeps us away from those questions. And frankly, I think, you know, a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, a million years ago, our ancestors – you know, they didn't necessarily need these things. They they spent every night. They didn't have their cell phones and the TV and the you know cable news telling them what to think. They looked up into the stars, and they had no explanation for anything. And they just looked into complete mystery and were confronted by the mystery of the natural world on a constant basis. And we're kind of flooded with these, you know, this modern life that that it it you know. It feeds us all of the the things to get hooked on. It it gives us this false impression that we have all the answers, and and the big questions kind of get pushed to the side. So this is a powerful way of bringing them to the fore, and and that that does entail some risks, but we know something about minimizing those risks in a responsible way. And yeah, it, it, we could we could benefit some people and learn some things fundamentally about how the brain, what the nature of the mind is, um, how, how, the, how, how the brain constitutes this sense of self and a sense of meaning. I think it's going to be, continue to be uh, really powerful for addressing these big picture scientific and therapeutic questions. Yeah, absolutely. I, so I'm one of those guys that asks those big questions all the time. I, I sense that maybe you are too, despite our, our modern society. And and you mentioned, you know, our ancestors. I Sometimes I talk with my wife at night. I'm like, man, we live in a better world uh, by all. I mean, I, I, I follow Stephen Pinker. I, I know his, you know, yeah. his view is great, right? He's like, hey, look, we're better. We're better than we've ever been on almost every single uh, measurable facet. And it's true. I believe that. Um, on the other hand, I sense that we're not much happier. As a matter of right. fact, maybe less happy. And so I, 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 I envy, you know, our, the people of our past. I, I look at my grandfather 
and grandmother still, and I look at those old photos, and I smile, and I think, man, to be back then seems, uh, and, and of course, every, every generation has that, you know, looking back, going, oh, simpler time. Uh, it, it does seem a little bit maybe like that's always true. Maybe the, the last generation was simpler, and, and the last generation before that was simpler, and, and maybe that's always true, and we go towards a more complicated time. We're better, but I don't know that we're any closer to finding those answers that you just talked about. Do you, do you sense that your work is on the edge of finding some of those things or maybe helping people better understand the world they live in and having less anxiety? I, I think it's one one of the risks is to, you know, going the Tim Leary route and stating these things too strongly. So I, I put it this way. I think psychedelics uh, uh, responsibly research and then, you know, if we go through the appropriate pathway, they're, they're – they're appropriate, um, uh, uh, regulated, you know, medical use can be one important piece, one way to address these. Sorry about that. No? One way to address these issues. Um, it's not the answer, but hopefully it is one important answer um, uh, among. Uh, many answers. Yeah. Well, Matt, I'll tell you, I think that's, uh, I, I know you just got a call and uh, I've, I've probably monopolized your afternoon to an extent, but man, this has been great. Um, I think it's probably as good a, a place to end it for now as possible, even though I have a million more questions. Um, and I think we could probably uh, do a, another three hours of this. Um, maybe we could do this again in, in the future because I really enjoyed this. And uh, I'd love to meet you face to face. I don't know if you noticed, by the way, but I was going um, full madman on you the whole time. I couldn't tempt you up here with a with a single malt or a bourbon, but I'm, I'm drinking a Jack Daniels <laughs> right now. Um, so... But uh, thank you so much. I really, really am looking forward to following you. Um, tell people where they can uh, find you. Uh, when you just mentioned social media. <laughs> we might as well keep using it. So uh, if, sure. you wanna, if you want to plug um, anything, please do. So, so let's see. One, uh, one way folks can check up on our research is if, if you um, look up hopkinspsychedelic.org. We have a, a newfangled website. We update it within the last year. You can find all of our current studies and our past uh, research studies and some information on our team there. So hopkinspsychedelic.org. And we also have a, a – if you if you look up the same thing, Hopkins Psychedelic, Johns Hopkins Psychedelic on Facebook, you can find our Facebook um, uh, group. Same thing with, with Twitter. Um, so, uh, on Twitter, I'm drug researcher, drug underscore researcher, I believe. Um, so yeah, yeah. You can find us, you know, we're great. You'll get, we're a, new, you'll get a new follower right after this. That'll be me. <laughs> <laughs> great. And yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do it, uh, some other time. It'd be great to, to meet in person. I'd, I'd love and it. Take you up on that offer, uh, sometime. That would be great, Bart. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt, thank you again. This has just been awesome. Super enjoyable. Uh, hopefully we can do that again in the future and just best of luck to you and your research. I'll, I'll be uh, following uh, intently. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And really appreciate the interest. Okay, brother. All right. Take, take care. care <laughs> thank you so much, everyone, for joining us here today. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and we're looking forward to bringing you more of the same in the near future with intriguing and inspirational guests from all walks of life. If you did like it and you want to join us again, please subscribe to The Ready Room and take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever it is you go to get your podcast. You can find us online at readyroombrief.com. I'm your host, Richard Frederick, and I look forward to being with you next time in The Ready Room. Thank you.